What's going on, everybody? We are here for episode 180. Cole, can you believe that? 180? We're I 20 episodes away. Can't believe it. That's almost a half of a whole spin. <laughs> we haven't mentioned uh, we haven't mentioned the fact that we were getting closer to 200 in a while, so I figured we might as well. And uh, if you're wondering in the video format why we're sitting next to each other like we're on a first date, it is because we are joined by guest Dr. Carly Floyd, um, all the way out from the West Coast. Um, Carly, what's going on? Hi, thanks for having me today. Absolutely. Um, so, Carly, what is it that you do primarily in the great world of pharmacy? Well, I'm a clinical pharmacist, so out here in, in New Mexico, um, technically not really on the coast. We don't really have water out here, but um, yeah, out here in New Mexico, I'm a clinical pharmacist. I see patients for all kinds of disease states, but primarily work at an HIV uh, clinic. I do HIV treatment, prevention. I treat all the disease states that come with HIV, hep C, um, and I teach a lot. And so I'm part of the UNM, which is our University of New Mexico AIDS Education and Training Center. And so I get to talk to people about things I'm passionate about. And that is my day job or day jobs, I guess, because there's two. Very nice. There you go. Are you primarily training um, like patient education? Or are you also training clinicians and uh, students or anything like that? Yeah. So I take students. Um, I have, uh, I think, they're the same appy students is that we use? Mm-hmm. Have? Yeah. okay so i'm like never knowing if people use the same terminology that yeah. we use um but yeah so i have appy students i also have i'm the program director for a community-based residency program for a pharmacy a pgy1 so i have a resident um one a year would love to have two but we're sadly only at one and then um, i teach just across our state um even cover down into the el paso region we do uh, teaching for healthcare providers, uh, lay personnel about HIV prevention, treatment, anything that kind of falls in that umbrella. Nice, very cool. Did you when when you first when you graduated, did you go into residency for ID, or how did you get on this path that you are on now? Well, I did not go into residency for ID. I actually did. Well, so I wasn't planning on doing a residency, and then fourth year happened, and I was like, oh, I'm going to do a residency. This is great. Um, and ended up matching with a program out in El Paso, um, which I thought, oh, you know, I may not really like it, but I ended up really loving it. I stayed out there. It was a community-based program um, on the border, and it was where I kind of got uh, exposed to HIV and, and loved it. Um, I'm not ID trained. I'm not an ID uh, pharmacist, but I do specialize in, in the HIV side of stuff. So we do STIs. We do um, prevention, treatment, hep C. Um, needle exchange stuff, a lot of substance use. Um, but so I did my residency there and then stayed for another almost three years before I moved back. I'm in Albuquerque um, in New Mexico. Nice. So you've, yeah. you've been uh, doing working in the HIV space since you were in residency training. Yeah, Very almost nice. 13 years now, which is oh, nuts. Oh, wow, that's awesome. Yeah, I where, feel like an old lady. <laughs> no. Where uh, did you go to pharmacy school? I went to the University of New Mexico, so here in Albuquerque. Okay. We only have one in our state, and so that's oh, the one wow. I went to. Wow, yeah. there's only one? Okay, that's not, That's probably a good thing. So is your um, pharmacy job market pool not as flooded as uh, it seems like ours is, or is it just that maybe there's not as many jobs around there? I think it's pretty flooded. Um, most people in New Mexico want to work in a few of our big cities, so we have like Albuquerque, Santa Fe and like Las Cruces are three big cities We're our state is 2 million people. So we're not a big state. Um, we're very rural. And so most people want to work in those, 
um, bigger places. And so those places tend to be flooded. It's the rural places that don't have Mm -hmm. good access to, you know, consistent people. I know we have a, we used to have a clinic out in Roswell, New Mexico, if you've ever been there with the aliens and all that. Oh, so what's going on with that out there? That's the big question. (laughs) Let's, let's divert a little bit because I have a lot of questions. I don't have a lot of answers. I haven't been there in a while, but it's really hard to keep people there. Is that, is that like, uh, if you've lived in, you know, New Mexico, is that like one of those things that's like, this is super lame or is it just like something the rest of the country talks about? Or do you actually like go and like, Visit there's stuff, stuff like to do. You, there's museums and stuff. It's all about the aliens. Yeah. Um, I think the locals are kind of like whatever, but yeah. um, well, for the most part. Um, <laughs> but pe- people go there to visit and see it. I mean, it's one of the things you can go do and see in New Mexico. That's it. I haven't We're been going. in a while. So <laughs> you should. You do. Hit me up when you come. How far was not... the pharmacy school make when you get a speaking gig? And, and <laughs> yeah, drop by just Roswell. four and a half, five hours uh, away by driving. That's close so, I mean, it's that's, not horrible, yeah, but close if it means we get to go study aliens, <laughs> let's go. You can absolutely. Absolutely Possibly aliens. be abducted. I mean, heck yeah. No, yeah. I'm super in. Yeah. That'd be great. <laughs> um, so, you know, you obviously been very passionate about HIV. And then I, I also see that uh, you're, you have your certified diabetes education and care specialist um, certification as well. So, Formerly do you. Formerly known as CDE. Yeah, it was so <laughs> much easier when it was a CDE. I was a big fan of that. Now they had to make it all fancy. But um, mm-hmm. the uh, it took me quite a while to memorize those new letters. <laughs> I think you might have same. added Oh my one gosh, the same thing. I, I was like, wait, is it ECS or CES? Yeah, I, I literally had to think about the CDC, like, you know, our big <laughs> CDC. That's how I remembered. I was like, if I remember those letters, and then ES after, I can remember that. <laughs> there you go. I'm an idiot. Okay. So um, do you do diabetes education primarily in HIV patients, or do you see other patients dealing with diabetes as well? Yeah, it used to be just HIV, um, and then our clinic expanded. So we're a federally qualified health center, um, and we've had Ryan White funding for, um, I think we're, we just hit our 25-year mark. But then we expanded into some primary care because, obviously, in healthcare, there's a shortage, and we're in New Mexico. There's lots and lots of uh, shortages. Nobody wants to come to New Mexico. They can get paid better in bigger places. Um, and so... Uh, we expanded into primary care. So we have a team of people who see, you know, run of the mill primary care stuff. And so they'll refer to me. So I would say it's probably mixed now 50, 50, but you know, as the population of people with HIV are aging, they have what's called the silver tsunami coming our way of, um, you know, people diagnosed in the nineties and now they're, they're aging and we're starting to see more and more chronic diseases and diabetes is for sure one of those. So I do see a good amount of people with both diabetes and HIV. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, do you have like AMCARE type pharmacists that work in the primary care side of things that you work with? Or are you one of the only pharmacists at your FQHC? Well, it's, it, it's complicated. So we're, we have three locations across two cities. So Santa Fe, the capital, which is maybe about an hour away-ish, depending on how fast you drive. And so we have a clinical pharmacist at our other specialty, primarily specialty site. And then we have a just primary care site out there. Um, and our my uh, recent graduate from my program was hired on and she was the first pharmacist clinician to run their diabetes program. Awesome. And so, um, we have an additional licensure here in New Mexico. So you get a farm clinician license, you can prescribe under protocol. Um, and so she's running the diabetes program there. So she handles diabetes day in, day out. And then our other one up in Santa Fe does kind of anything really. Um, but a lot of pain management pre COVID did travel medicine, which was, uh, a different, uh, era. It feels like, yeah. (laughs) 
but then down in, in Albuquerque, where I am at my location, so I have my resident, and I just finished a training of another pharmacist clinician, staff pharmacist. So he got his hours, and the board of pharmacy is meeting Thursday and Friday, and they should hopefully approve him. And then there will be two of us. And I have another PRN who works like four hours, four to eight hours a week as needed nice. um, for clinical stuff. So mostly me, but I'm trying to expand that and have yeah. more people. That's cool. That's yeah. awesome. So um, yeah. do you guys have a dispensing pharmacy as well? We do. Yeah. So we have a 340B pharmacy on site nice. at uh, actually at th- all three locations. Um, we used to only have two and now we have a third um, at our primary care one in Santa Fe. Very cool. Yeah, it makes it really easy to just be able to walk down there and fix things. Yes. Like, oh, they they are out of refills. Oh, okay, here's a verbal. Can you right. Yeah. It? And they can walk out with their meds right now. That's the bet. <laughs> yeah, because we have uh, we have a couple um, dispensing pharmacies in our FQHC that I work at too. And same thing. It's like it'll be. I have one laptop that has our you know EMR on it, and then I have the other laptop yep. that has our pharmacy software. <laughs> so I, I can like check, do test claims and stuff to see if you know if something needs a prior auth. It's very convenient. Very um, convenient. Yeah. And we actually have uh, technicians who do prior auths for us, which is really, oh, really helpful. Fantastic. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I've loved that. Just being able to talk to them and it makes getting things approved a lot easier. Yeah. So. That's great. Yeah. Very cool. I wish I had that. I need to put in for a technician that does prior auths. We have that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You do. It's super nice. Cole, Cole has an army of pharmacy personnel that works at his institution. Yeah. Well, Cole, you do a lot of prior auths, right? That's like what we do. Yeah. We it's pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Yeah, a lot yeah. of access related stuff. Yeah, well, that's good. Yeah, we need a lot more of that. Yeah, but cool. It sounds like y'all have got a pretty smooth run uh, gig down there. So yeah, <laughs> if, when, if you do you say, know, so, if when, you do say so yourself. <laughs> I mean, it's nice. Uh, today I was the only provider on site, so um, it was a little bit more chaotic and mm-hmm. not so smooth. <laughs> I like got here and I was like, okay, I can breathe. But <laughs> how many patients did I see today? <laughs> I think there were sixteen on my schedule, which is a yeah. lot. Yeah, for yeah. Me. I you know thirty minutes to an hour a visit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was a hectic day. Yeah, yeah. That's the, that's like our FQC th- is like bringing about new productivity. Uh, I guess like expectations and that's the new thing they like they want me to see 16 at minimum a day and i was like i don't think that <laughs> they're like oh, that's based on average i was like oh it's not <laughs> we're gonna have to have a discussion average about for, that. maybe average for who average, yeah average per week maybe God, it's yeah. crazy well and the education piece alone is going to take yeah. way much way more time that's the hard part that's yeah. why they refer to us so we yeah. can educate well again yeah, yeah. we'll talk off air about that <laughs> sure 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 <laughs> yeah fqhc world is interesting Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, all right. So, um, you know, I, I, there's a million different things we could go into with HIV, obviously, but, um, you know, I think one of the things I definitely want to make sure we touch on is prep because I think that's yes. something that is, um, becoming a lot more, um, I, I hate to use the word mainstream, but kind of, and, um, even in primary care clinics and stuff, cause there was a while where I feel like it, people shied away from it in certain situations and whatnot, but now it's, you're seeing it a lot more, um, as well as, as it should be in primary care settings. So, yeah. um, can we, let's talk through, you know, prep treatment and, and who can we start off with those, who are some candidates, you know, are for, to, for prep? Cause I think, you know, there may be some misnomers about who would even be a candidate for prep in the first place. Yeah, totally. I think um, one of the things I love the most about the um, most recent updated guidelines, the CDC released at the beginning of December um, before they approved the new prep medication um, from the FDA. But what I love about it is it's really taking away like, well, if you meet these like specialized categories, then you could have prep. It's kind of like, 
everybody should have PrEP. Everybody should talk about PrEP. And so PrEP being pre-exposure prophylaxis, or as I like to tell my learners, it's like taking a daily birth control pill, right? You're taking something to prevent, although now we have more than just oral options, but um, you know, anyone really could be a candidate. We can use it for people who have their risks of injection drugs. We can use it for people who have risks sexually. And it's not just for gay men. It can be for heterosexual people. It can be for transgender people. So really anyone, and they really push that in the guidelines of talk to people about PrEP. Don't keep it reserved for a certain population. Everyone should know about it. And we should determine whether or not their risks are high enough that they should go on PrEP. And if they want it, they should get it, even if their risks are really low. So I'm really thankful that they changed that yeah. in the last five months. Absolutely. And what's, what about age-wise? Because that's the other thing people will ask about. Yeah. So um, it's approved. Uh, the oral prep options are approved um, based on weight. So uh, the I think it's like 77 kilos. I'd have to double check. I don't usually see young people. Yeah. My people are usually over 18 and tiny humans are scary, even though I have a few that live in my house. It's weird. Um, but yeah, not 77 kilos, 77 pounds, so, 35 yeah. kilos. Yeah. So as long as they meet that weight requirement for the oral prep, they can do it. And then I believe the newest one also had a similar um, uh, weight cutoff, but I don't think that they actually really have studied it um, yeah. in young people, but kind of based on how it should work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, let's say, okay, so let's say you have a patient that, I guess, well, first of all, before we even go into that, um, let's talk about the oral formulations first, since those are the ones that are okay. more widely available at this point. So if someone who's not in the HIV space looking at tenofovir disoprosyl fumarate versus tenofovir alafinamide, um, both in combination with intracytabine, like how, what's the difference between those? Why do we care? Yeah, that is a big question. So there's two formulations of tenofovir. I like to say the AF and the DF formulations or TAF and TDF. So TDF came around first. We've had it for a long time. It was the first medication studied for prevention, the one that we got from our IPREX and IPERGAY studies. Um, it's really a uh, great medication. But the downside to it is it does lead to um, bone toxicity and renal toxicity. And part of that is um, to get into like the nerdy science behind it is how long it stays out in the plasma, the plasma half-life versus how much can actually get in the cells and do the work. And that's where the work happens is intracellularly. And so TDF has like a, I don't know, 0.4 minute or I don't even know half-life. It's really, really short. And so it not a lot gets into the cells. And so you need 300 milligrams of TDF um, to get in about 10% into the cells, so 30 milligrams, where what they did was they took tenofovir and they reformulated it into the AF or alafenamide version. And what that is, is a much quicker, I'm sorry, much longer uh, half-life so that more can get into the, uh, the nucleus of the cell and actually do the work. Um, and so, so what they see is that 90% with TAF actually gets in and does the work, whereas 10% with TDF. So you're getting about 22-ish milligrams with TAF, 30 milligrams with TDF, but all that extra that floats around with TDF causes those side effects. And so with TAF, you're not seeing the same side effects. You don't have the damage as much on the kidneys or as much on the bones, which has always kind of been our problem. And it's been used before PrEP for HIV treatment. And so that was always like our rate limiting step with that medication. So now is there a situation where we would use TDF uh, cost or is that generally not an issue with funding and stuff like that? 
Either way, honestly, they're both really, really effective. So when taken every day, it's like 99% effective. So if insurance is going to only cover TDF, then go the route of TDF. Obviously, if their kidney function doesn't allow it, you can submit for a prior auth and get TAF, but um, it just kind of depends. So uh, Truvada TDF is generic. So you can buy it if FQHC price is like, I don't know, 20 bucks or yeah. something, super cheap. Um, there are... I think when it first came out as a generic, it was like $200 cheaper. So it wasn't very cheap, but then it finally dropped, which is great. So much cheaper, but you can also get brand name Truvada and get a copay card, no problem. And it shouldn't cost people anything. So if that's what the insurance covers, we go with that. Um, and there's no other reason. And if they um, their insurance prefers Descovy, great, we go with Descovy. So you can use either or. They're both really, really effective for daily oral prep. When we're talking about on-demand prep, it gets a little different because we don't have data with TAF. And so you would use TDF in those mm. situations. Gotcha. What about in female patients? I know there was some discussion with TAF formulations about receptive vaginal intercourse and that maybe yeah. being an issue. Is that still... Yeah. Um, part of the label? Yeah, it is. We don't have data yet in cisgender women. So essentially, we, the problem is, is uh, TDF um, is not as forgiving in the vaginal tissue as it is in rectal tissue or in the blood. So if you miss two to three doses a week with TDF, you're still going to get pretty good um, for, I mean, sorry, with, with medication for um, rectal tissue, blood, non-vaginal tissue, you're still going to get pretty good protection. But if you um, are exposed vaginally, your vaginal tissue, you miss two doses a week, those concentration levels drop because of the nature of the vaginal tissue. It's constantly sloughing itself. It, it doesn't retain the drug the same. And so we have to be really careful with that. And so we don't have data yet um, on cisgender women um, or people who are born female identify as female um, with TAF. So we use Truvada or generic Truvada for um, vaginal exposure. Same thing goes for injection drug use. We don't have data really on it for TAF. For TAF, okay. Um, yeah. What about drug-drug interactions? Is there anything different about the formulations? No, they're pretty much the same. So if you if there's a drug interaction with one, there's with the other, but they're pretty minor. Um, for the most part, there's not much. The big thing we watch out for is, um, especially in our MSM population or men who have sex with men, we see a lot of creatine use and we see the spike in serum creatinine. So then that can really affect, you know, what they're getting with their prep. And so we really, it's not really a drug interaction, but we watch for it a lot so that, you know, if we're seeing hmm, your kidney functions kind of starting to go down, are you using creatine, ask them to stop and then hydrate and they tend to get better and can stay on prep. Gotcha. And is that, yeah. um, so is that a, like a true reflection of their renal function in that instance? Or do you, or do you take into account the fact that like that the creatine, you're taking creatine, creatine is going to be high. So your kidneys are probably yeah. fine. It's just that you have kind of a faux increase. Yeah. So usually what we'll do is just have them hold it, hydrate, you know, and then check kidney function again. Then that shows us, Hey, like it's not actually to verify the medication. It's, right. it's your, your supplements. And so probably should avoid that. We don't want to cause any damage to your kidneys further. Um, and most people are pretty good about that. Or if they cut back on their use too, sometimes they just don't use it as much and their kidney function gets better. Right. So yeah. kidney function, you referenced Hep C before, but what are we kind of screening for at baseline? And then as you go, when you're thinking about these two medications? Yeah. So baseline, we want to kind of get a big panel. Um, and this can, this can be challenging, especially, you know, if people aren't 
insured. Um, that always poses a challenge. There's a lot of different ways, but in general, we want to get a baseline uh, HIV screen. And depending on what PrEP you're using, um, generally that's just a fourth generation antigen antibody combo to try to detect it as soon as possible. Um, and then we want to look at their kidney function. So BMP, CMP, or even just a serum creatinine is fine if you have the little point of care machines, those work. Um, we want to screen for a sexually transmitted infection. So we do blood, which is syphilis, and then generally three site STI swabs, the nucleic amplification acid test, NAAT, I always forget what it stands for, <laughs> um, but we do those. Um, and so, you know, if we usually say, if you use it, we're going to swab it. So um, generally speaking, it's like rectal, oral, and um, urine. We'd like to not just screen urine because we know that uh, chlamydia, gonorrhea, all those things live outside of the urinary tract. So we screen for those. Um, and then depending on what you're going to use, if you use Descovy, um, or TAF, we need to check a lipid panel at baseline. And that's what the new guidelines. So this is something we didn't do prior to like December. And that's because there's more and more evidence of um, triglyceride elevations with uh, TAF formulation. And I've seen that in practice where everything looks fine. And then you just see a slightly elevated triglycerides and hmm. um, have to like, it's annoying because then you're like, well, what do I do with this? <laughs> we yeah. really know. We can tell them, go make sure you see a primary. And right. It, primary care but is there a re like is there a reason for that like that we like identified a reason i think that they they have kind of some theories behind it um there's also like some theories behind weight gain as well and why we're seeing it more with TAF versus not and and i'm not sure if it's exactly like this is the the reason but we do see it and it's been something they've been monitoring for some time and so i think that's why the guidelines finally were like yeah we need to we need to add this in here just to monitor and keep an eye on because um you know, if we're seeing those spikes that could potentially bring harm, but I don't know that there's like a definitive mechanism. Solid. Yeah. yeah. Answer. Has there been any, or like, if there is, I missed it. Uh, I mean, we miss things all the time. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, has there been any like, or have you noticed any like issues with like glucose intolerance or any other like metabolic type issues? Or has it been just basically the weight gain triglycerides? Generally not, not with prep. If somebody has like, um, hepatitis C or B, yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. Cause you know, the extra hepatic manifestations that can happen with, yeah. with those, um, those diseases, but generally no, um, it's always funny cause we do, we do all of our labs. Well, the ones people I usually see for prep are in the afternoon. And so they're never fasting. And so I will see, you know, like they're, they're fasting glucose, which it's not like, you know, 101, 105, something like that. But I don't ever see anything like, unrelated, you know, to family history or whatever, that's like, oh, wow, all of a sudden you're, you know, you've got diabetes and we have no idea why. Yeah. So there is some, some of that with like HIV treatment, but mm -hmm. um, not quite the same with PrEP, gotcha. which is nice. Yeah. So what else are we thinking about? So weight gain, lipids, renal function, what else are we thinking about oh, yeah. concerns that you'd want to like talk to a patient about long-term? Is it just yeah. generally regarded as safe or what should we, what should they be aware of? Could be some, some issues. Yeah, I'm glad you, you brought that back up because there was a couple other things. Hepatitis B screening is really important, and that's really, really important for um, oral PrEP because tenofovir is active against hepatitis B. So if we're treating somebody for hepatitis B, Descovy, Truvada is great. It's going to suppress the virus, but there's a serious risk of fulminant hepatitis um, due to stopping 
Descovy or Truvada if somebody has Hep B. So it's really important to screen. And that's more than just like a, you know, a Hep B surface antibody. We're going to look at the core antibody and the antigen to see were they previously exposed? Are they vaccinated and immune or do they have an active infection? And so I've had a few cases of active Hep B um, that have come in and you have to have that conversation of, well, once we start you on this, it's something that you would probably stay on. Now, do you, is that the best option for you? Um, and now we might be able to say, well, you do have Hep B. It's up to you what you want to do with that. But we can give you prep that's not going to suppress that virus and it's not as, as much of a risk. But so we want to make sure we're checking Hep B serologies. And then, of, of course, Hep C, any other sexually transmitted infections, which for a long time we used to say, no, it's not sexually transmitted, but we know it is, and especially more in our um, MSM population. So we're treating it more now as a as an STI in that population. So we want to screen those as well. It won't affect their prep, but we can Treat capitalize them. on that and say, hey, let's get you treated and cured. Yeah, right. And in New Mexico, we're the number one for like hep C um, per population. So we definitely do this a lot in our wow. in our clinic. Do you, is there any recommendation to like vaccinate for hep B before starting this? Um, if yeah. they're negative? Yeah. The guidelines recommend that hep A and B, I mean, if you can check both, if, if, you know, resources are limited and you had to pick one, I'd pick B, B. but then you can vaccinate if they're unvaccinated or not immune. Um, and so we do that. Um, and, and then, you know, follow up with a, a hep B surface antibody titer just to make sure they had a response. And if their core antibody, like the surface antigen being an acute infection, but if their mm -hmm. core antibody was positive and their surface antigen for Hep B was negative, would you mm -hmm. still have the same risk with a a flare up potentially? Or not is it with not prep? Okay, good deal. I was yeah, just... which is good. Yeah, because like okay. with, if they were to go on Hep C treatment, possibly though, I, it's super it's pretty super rare. small. Okay, yeah. So really, it's the um, surface yeah. antigens, the main one. That's the one they can really. Yeah. Okay. Good deal. Yeah, that's the one we want to know. And then if that's positive, then, you know, further testing to determine, you know, Viral what's really load. going on there. Yeah, all that good stuff. Um, but I've only had to have that. And we've been doing prep at my clinic for for a long, long time. Um, so, you know, I've only had that conversation a couple times. I don't know many other providers who've seen it. So it's not super common, but mm -hmm. um, it is a bloodborne virus. So if HIV is bloodborne, you know, there's always that risk of, of the hepatitis B as well. For so. sure. Absolutely. Um, um, so what else, uh, you mentioned there's a non-oral formulation and I know Cole and I have maybe mentioned this in our new drug update, but we haven't really mm -hmm. gone into detail about it. So can you give us the deets yeah. on, uh, yes. the new injectable formulation? Yes. The, I'll give you the lowdown. So, um, cabotegravir is the new injectable medication, which is an integrase inhibitor. It is also co-formulated for HIV treatment. So that one is brand name Cabanuva. And I always want to say Cabanuva when I'm talking about it for PrEP, but by itself, it is indicated now for PrEP and that is known as Apertude. Um, and so cabotegravir, um, in the studies for PrEP, was really, really good. They ended both of the studies earlier. So there were two studies, the, uh, it's the HIV Prevention and Trial Network, HPTN 083 and 084. One was in uh, cisgender uh, females and one was in uh, men who have sex with men and transgender women. And both were super, super efficacious. They came in and ended the study early, put everybody on um, injectable cab, which is 
super awesome compared to Truvada. And so essentially what it is, is a long acting integrase inhibitor, one drug that you inject every two months and it prevents HIV. And in, in that, in the MSM and transgender women population was like 68% um, reduction in HIV transmission, which is huge. And then with the um, cisgender women, it was like almost 90%, 89% reduction, just really, really great. Um, and then the question is like, well, why is that? Why did, you know, why did Truvada not work so well? Well, most of the people in the other arms didn't have high enough levels of their oral prep, which makes sense. If you're not taking it, you're not going to get protected. <laughs> yeah. So then is it really that cabotegravir is superior or is it just the mechanism, right? That they're not having to take a pill every day. Adherence. I'm the, yeah, I'm the worst pharmacist at taking pills. I have a pill box. Like I forget my pills all the time like guilty. And so like, you know, like having an injection once every two months, yeah, that'd be a lot easier. Um, so it's really great. We have really, really great data with it, but it's really hard to get. It's been out on the market since the end of December and we're a clinic that specializes in this and we've not yet given it. Um, I know our other clinic in town, which is like, we're the two main clinics that kind of deal with this with HIV treatment and prevention in our state. They haven't done it yet either. It's just mm really hard and insurance hasn't updated it. There's a lot of like weird nuances with how do you get it? Do you bill it out of medical benefits or pharmacy? And they can't administer it themselves. They have to come into a clinic and get it administered. So, so, so it's really great, but complicated. So what, so that's the major, major holdup. And we had talked about this a little bit the other day offline, but um, you know, you billing the major medical side of things because the farm, obviously the pharmacists that are listening are very familiar with pharmacy billing, which is in real time sure. and very convenient when it knows, when, you know, we <laughs> you know right away whether something's covered major medical is not that way. You know, you may administer a, you know, procedure or in this case of uh, an injectable thinking you're getting paid, paid for it. And, can you yeah. tell us, like, you've had some issues with that uh, yeah. already with not yeah, getting paid back. Yeah, it's nuts. You, you can call and they'll say, yep, this, in, this you know, J code is covered, which is like the code for the injection. And you get a, an authorization number, whatever, and they'll tell you this is not a guarantee of payment, which you're always kind of like, huh, okay. Huh. Well, why are you telling me it's covered? <laughs> yeah, right? Why would you tell me this? And so what we've had happen is that we've had a couple payers come back and be like, mm, yeah, we don't pay for this. They'll pay like one injection and then they'll stop. And so we're battling with that. And then the other thing that's super weird is because we're a federally qualified health center, we only get paid like, you know, what's called our encounter rate for every visit for Medicaid. Well, if somebody comes in and we're billing it out of their medical benefit and it's Medicaid, they're going to pay us like 160 bucks for a 4,000 or $6,000 medication. So we lose money on it. And so we aren't able to even give it to people with Medicaid because Medicaid doesn't cover it on the pharmacy benefits. So it's like this weird, like vicious cycle that we're in that we so can't figure out. So they don't reimburse for the medicine at all? No, That's because so it's all supposed to be included in that federally qualified health center encounter rate, whatever that is that you negotiate with the Medicaid payers. Wow. So Which is vastly nuts. different when you throw in the cost of a uh, <laughs> medication. Yes. Yeah. That's and so crazy. we have some people who like it looked like it was going through. And then all of a sudden they came back and said, no, uh, that check we gave you for like, I don't know, six grand for uh, covering the injectable treatment option. They're like, yeah, actually, it's supposed to be the, the $160, not $6,000. And we're like, oh, that's a problem. Perfect. So yeah, is your, so is your pharmacy ordering it um, and it's in dispensing it and then it's being administered in the office? 
Is that how it's working or is it coming no. from somewhere else? So one thing I don't love, and if the reps are listening, I will tell them this to their face, but they <laughs> limited who can buy it. That's so what I So only certain numbers of pharmacies can access it. And I think it was like eight in the beginning. They might have more, but so we've petitioned. We've said, hey, we want to be a part of this. Like, let us in your network. And they're like, mm, no, you're small peas. We don't really care about you. So we can't order it at our pharmacy to like even like attempt to test a pharmacy claim. Our wholesaler doesn't have it. It's like this just mess of a system. It's yeah. like you have this amazing drug. You want it out there because that's beneficial to you as a drug company. Mm-hmm. But you made it really, really hard to access. And the specialists, the people who are doing this all the time, can't even figure out how to get it. What is that going to be like at a general primary care yeah. office? Yeah, it's really yeah, weird. We have these same frustrations with limited distribution drugs. So were you? So I guess in that instance, I know, I know you haven't really done it yet um, uh, much or at all, so it'd be hard to know for sure. But I guess in that instance, since y'all don't have to purchase the drug, then you wouldn't be losing the cost of the drug. You would just be getting a small reimbursement for the encounter. So the pharmacy doesn't purchase it. The medical side purchases it. Okay. So we do purchase it. You still pay it. for it. Mm-hmm. They call it buy and bill. So you have to buy it out of like a medical account. I, so we I had see. to set up a, a whole new medical account, do this whole like ridiculous thing. And so then we still buy it and we're losing it. You can go through the company and then they can send it to like one of their contract pharmacies and then ship it to you. Um, but then you're coordinating with all these moving parts mm-hmm. all the time to try to make sure the med shows up for when the patient's scheduled. It's, yeah. It's, it's a mess. Really, it's a mess. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big mess. That seems like such an inefficient way of setting yeah. that up for a new drug. That's so weird. But there's like a lot of high dollar new drugs have these weird convoluted systems every single mm-hmm. time, and I can't imagine there, there has to be a reason. I mean, there's yeah. got to be some weird cost saving reason, but it's like this every single time. It's so weird. It's just so frustrating. It's like, wow, this is such a great med, but mm, we probably can't yeah. get it for you for months trend. to years. Yeah. So if you're and listening- with the number of new diagnoses I've had, I'm like. We should be getting this out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you're listening and you know like a uh, drug company CEO or something, like send them our way so we can get an explanation. <laughs> From Viv, V-I-I-V. Yeah. We're, we're gonna yeah. Looking, I'm looking at you, Viv. Viv, what are you doing? We're going to have a chat. <laughs> we're going to have a chat. I did talk to somebody at a conference and it didn't go very far, but. Oh. So when you're I'll finally able to get this um, for somebody, what are we thinking about monitoring wise and the difference between that and TDF and TAF? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So it is a little different because one of the things that they found in the studies is that they missed infections kind of early on because cabotegravir is so strong at suppressing virus. So if they were exposed and they did seroconvert to be HIV positive, then they didn't necessarily detect it. And so they actually recommend a viral load, an HIV viral load or an HIV RNA test. They recommend it at baseline. That's the fastest way to diagnose somebody, but it's also really expensive. It's like, I don't know, 500 bucks a test. And then they recommend it every two months. So, you know, that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah, because you're you're coming in every two months for an injection, and so you need to be testing. And if you run an antigen antibody test, you might miss it. Mm. And of the people who did test positive and were on cabotegravir, there was some resistance that did develop. So that's part of the issue of like, well, we can't miss HIV and continue them for months and months and, and months on cabotegravir and potentially knock out integrase inhibitors, which are first-line HIV yeah treatment options so that's a big concern oh oh my gosh 
Yeah. So I'm now it's a viral load. I'm starting to get very so disappointed is, about this drug now. I know. I know. I'm really disappointed about it too. It goes back to Viv because I want Viv to cover the cost of these, these yeah. tests. Like for Viv. people who, Medicare or whatever, you know, when they don't cover it. I know, Viv. I'm going to. Well, they're going to hear from us. And that should change things. Yes. Yes. You let me know when you talk to them. We have a lot words. of pull in the big pharma world. <laughs> oh, yeah. For sure. <laughs> um. So do you think that that's part of the reason why, why do you think it has to be injected in a healthcare setting as opposed to, I mean, we have a lot of other injections that monthly injections that patients give themselves is because there needs to be like an every two month test and that sort of thing, or? I think there's that. And it's also not the most comfortable injection. So what's interesting is in the, in one of the studies, the men who have sex with men and transgender women, about 2.2% people discontinued due to side effects, Hmm. mostly injection site reactions. In the cisgender women study, no one did, which was, I thought, quite interesting um, because uh, they they were all out in sub-Saharan Africa and these women were like, no, I'm not stopping this. This is great. Um, we saw a lot more in some of the other countries where maybe access to other options is, is easier. And they were like, yeah, I don't really want that. Um, but so I think that's one thing is, you know, the injection pain, right? And then the other thing, yeah, we have to monitor. And if we're just giving people these meds we have no idea. Um, we need to be checking. It's the same thing with um, oral prep too. We need to make sure that they're HIV negative every three months because if if we're continuing a two drug NRTI regimen, which is essentially our backbone for HIV, we're opening up the door for resistance. Um, you know, by if they get HIV and continue on a sub therapeutic regimen. So that yeah. I think is the big reason. I don't have a good solution to like, well, if they could do it at home and then, you know, we could figure it out, like, that'd be great. But I don't know. It's, it's tough. Cause we, we want to prevent, but we also don't really want to cause reduce resistance. Yeah. 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 And our main drug, drug yeah. class, that would be horrible. Yeah. Integrase inhibitors. We need you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the yeah. Best. There's other stuff coming, but still, we don't know really if that's going to pan out as, as great as the integrase inhibitors are. So, yeah. So, yeah, um, I mean, is there is there anything on the horizon as far as prep besides what are they talking about doing anything else as far as, you know, this goes or new medications or anything like that that you know of they're looking at? Yeah, yeah. So there's some that are um, – I know Merck has a couple drugs that they're looking at for, like, long-acting, I think, like, six-month prep. Mm-hmm. Um, I think right now their, sti- their studies are on hold. They had a, an FDA hold on some and then some that they voluntarily held due to some weird like lab abnormalities that they're kind of investigating. Um, but those are hopefully going to get back going and, and we'll see what happens there. And then I know that there have been some like vaginal rings for PrEP that have been studied out in Africa um, to try to get access to PrEP out there. Um, nothing super close. We've been waiting for cabotegravir for, I don't know, probably three or four years. I've, I feel like it's like We've kept saying like it's coming, it's coming, and now it's here, and we're like, Ugh, we can't even get it. But yeah, they're yeah. they're studying some new mechanisms, and I'm excited about them. Um, what about uh, you had mentioned briefly um, on-demand prep? So kind of going back, mm. I guess, to Truvada. But um, how does that work? How effective is that? What does that mean? <laughs> Yeah, on-demand prep is really cool. So it didn't used to be in the guidelines, and then they added it in in the last update. But it basically is for people who know that they're going to have sex um, and they kind of don't want to be on daily prep or maybe can't take daily prep, um, they could do this on-demand. And so essentially what it is is two tablets within two to 24 hours of sex um, and then 
24 hours later, they take one tablet and then 24 hours later, another tablet. So essentially 48 hours after. And then if they haven't had any more sex in there, they're done. So it's four pills. And it, it actually was how it was originally kind of studied before we got to daily prep. Um, and it's about 86% effective, which is great, right? If that's your, if it's on-demand prep or nothing, I'm going to go with on-demand prep. For sure. It's way better. Um, and it's great because it's less toxic to the body. Um, the problem is, is that a lot of people don't plan their sex. Um, it just kind of spontaneously happens and you don't take it in, in advance. And so the daily prep option tends to be easier for a younger um, population to maybe more spontaneous. I do have more on-demand use in some of my older patients. Um, I have plenty, and sorry, I just hit the mic, but I have plenty of uh, older people in their 80s who are uh, very, like they know when they're going to have sex and they take their on-demand prep. And it, I mean, it's like planned and it's, it's very, very neat to see, but they are very responsible and have their, their prep for those moments. So, I mean, it's nice to have options, right? Like if you're a daily, yeah. daily pill, but maybe you could do on-demand, you can use condoms. We have a lot of different ways to kind of prevent, prevent HIV, which is great. So, so how does this differ from us? Uh, you know, maybe you don't deal with this as much, but like a healthcare associated needle stick, Mm. You know, I, I've known people who've got needle sticks and had to take things after. I haven't really looked into exactly what that is. But how does this differ from that? Because usually I feel like they had more yeah. than one pill that they were taking. Yeah, they usually do. I mean, now it could be in one pill potentially, but so that's PEP or post-exposure prophylaxis. So PrEP is like your daily birth control. PEP is like your plan B, your morning after kind of emergency. So that's taken within 72 hours of um, either a needle stick um, it could be the condom broke. It could be, um, we have unfortunately like in, um, sexual assault, um, or are they just, you know, went out to a party, don't remember what really happened. They want to go on PEP. Um, and so essentially it's a fully active HIV regimen that prevents HIV as long as it started within 72 hours. And the key thing there is preventing that integration of the, the HIV now converted into DNA into the host cell DNA. And that's where that integrase inhibitor plays a huge role. And so it's three pills or three drugs, usually one pill or two pills. Guidelines technically say like Tivocate Truvada or um, Icentris Truvada, but you could use something like Bictarvi, a single tablet regimen. They're just as effective. They're just not in the guidelines. Um, but those are a fully active regimen for technically 28 days, but we usually just give a month supply. Gotcha. Um, and then you test, you test when they come in and test when they finish their pills. And then for healthcare providers, there's different other um, times to test for that. But um, that's what that is. So it's essentially like your emergency. And then if there's ongoing risk, so somebody who, you know, maybe finds themselves going out and partying more often than they originally thought, maybe they'd be a good candidate for <laughs> prep. And we would just, they finish their PEP and then the next day start prep because prep is two thirds of a pep regimen right. because you have two of those pills. So do you have so. to verify that they're negative uh, in between that, like from the end of the pep and then before they start the prep or. Yeah. So when they come in, we'll just, after they finish their pep, we'll just do a rapid test to make sure that's negative and then put them on prep and then go for another, um, you know, three months. So the, the key thing here is though, knowing the exposures. So the rapid tests, when you're looking at them, they're antigen and antibody and the antigen tests can tell you, probably safely to say as early as 14 days before they're in your office with you. So today, 14 days ago, I can say that 
you know, you didn't acutely get it. And then the antibody test, the fourth generation is about 30 days. So you have what's called a window period. And so you do it when they come in for PEP and you can say, okay, let's say safely a month ago, you were negative. You're going to come back in again in a month, try to abstain from sex. If you can during that time, let's test you again. And then we know, yeah, you're good to go. Let's just transition you over to PrEP. Gotcha. You know, um, I could see if, if this section in school was taught around the same time as heart failure, there'd be a lot of confusion between PEP, PrEP, HEFPEF, and HEFREF, and HEFMREF. There'd just be too many acronyms. They need to make oh, sure oh separate these significantly. Oh, only you Seriously. would think of it. <laughs> would think no, of but that's so true. Thinking of all the ways I could get really confused by acronyms. Well, well now they have HEFMREF and all yeah, the, the two, the yeah. two oh, yeah. other formulations. The yeah, the new ones. Um, yeah. So it's basically, in regards to the on-demand prep versus pep pep is in, is more so like you're fairly confident that the person you, you you came in contact with hiv and that's why you have to go a little bit more extreme with the mm-hmm. with the prevention versus the on demand is like it's just because you don't know whether the person has hiv or not so statistically speaking they probably no well not probably but could not have it as well and True, that's yeah. where um that's where, where the like because the one regimen just seems so much more extreme than the other. I guess that's yeah. that's where the, the it's just the risk from a statistical standpoint. I guess right. Right. Yeah. So PEP is in theory, you know the source's status, or you have no clue and there's no way to determine. Right. So, um, in a needle stick injury, you know, usually it's like the person you knew the person was HIV positive, so it's like okay, well, I know that there was a risk, so I'm going to go on PEP for a month. Um, and the idea is to prevent that integration before it widespread disseminates through the body. So that's mm-hmm. that 72 hour window. We know it's pretty effective before then, um, with on-demand prep, it's like, maybe, maybe not. I may yeah. or may not have a conversation with them. I may not feel comfortable. I want to take steps to prevent for me. And yeah. some people, you know, still have those conversations and they know their partners on prep or they know their partner is HIV positive on meds, undetectable. And they're like, I still want to be on prep. And so they can do it on demand that way as well. Yeah. And we haven't really, this is off topic, but since you brought that up, I think that that's the other thing that from an actual HIV patient standpoint, I think a lot of times if you're not working in HIV that people don't realize because you, if yeah. uh, our meds are so good now that, you know, reducing mm-hmm. viral load that, you know, the, the case of sero, serodiscordant relationships, actually, as long as the patient's viral load is undetectable, can happen without transmission. Is that yeah accurate? Absolutely. It's totally accurate. So what's super cool is we have um, solid, solid data, solid evidence behind um knowing that if someone is undetectable, they are untransmittable. There's no virus that can be spread to somebody else. So we call it U equals U. And so in the prep world, most people that I I encounter know about that. And they're like, oh yeah, I know about U equals U. And I talk to people about it. It's like, great, cool. Um, But when we're talking to new people who maybe have never heard it, essentially there's over a hundred thousand um, condomless sex acts that have been reviewed in people who were not on anything but HIV undetectable to somebody serodiscordant, so HIV negative, and there's not a single case of documented re- transmission, and that was for cases less than 200 copies per ml, and our labs actually undetectable are like less than 20 now. When I started in HIV, it was less than 48, um, so I mean, we've got really sensitive tests that can tell us like teeny tiny amounts of HIV, so if somebody's like slightly detectable, we know that they, as long as they're under 200, they cannot transmit the virus. There's no evidence that that could ever happen. 
So it's really cool. We love talking about U equals U. So it's a great way, like transmission. And so sometimes we have people come in, their partner's HIV positive, they're on prep, and they finally decide that they kind of want to stop because they're in a relationship with this person, they're undetectable, they're not concerned, and they stop prep. Or they stay on it because as a doctor I used to work with, she would call it uh, belts and suspenders kind of people. You put your belt on and your suspenders as extra protection. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty funny. I like it. So That's what are good. some um, what are some other situations where you would need to or could stop prep? So a lot of times it's really when the risks go away. Um, so we have people who come in and they're like, "Yeah, I'm I'm not in a relationship. I don't plan on being in a relationship. I'm you know sexually active and and I want to go on prep." And then maybe they meet somebody and they decide that they're going to be in a monogamous relationship. Sometimes they meet somebody and decide they're going to be in an open relationship where they have sex with other people. And we see that a lot in, um, in our prep clinic. And so we continue them on prep. Um, and so, you know, it just kind of depends on the person. We really have those conversations with them one-on-one of, you know, what are your risks? We have a, a nice little sheet that kind of walks through, you know, what are your odds of getting it if you engage in condomless sex or you don't share your or you don't get clean needles, you share your needles, those kind of things. Um, but really it, it's when the patient feels that they're no longer at risk. And the downside to that is that a lot of people who actually end up getting diagnosed with HIV don't realize that they actually were high risk to begin with. So we really talk a lot about what is high risk and what is a risk to you. Um, and there's a lot of misconceptions out there. So um, sometimes people um, move away and they don't know anybody. So then they stop their prep for some time. COVID was another reason. A lot of people were like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going out. So I don't need to be on my prep. So just kind of depends. Yeah. That's good. Um, anything else like in closing, you know, we've kept you for a good hour and I'm sure you're, uh, and you're finishing up your clinic day. So I appreciate you sticking on <laughs> uh, with us an hour after uh, you get off work. Um, is there yeah, any I love this stuff. Good yeah, deal. our time zones are a little bit different. Yeah, so. <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs> just a little. So just At finished, least I'm not a, all the way on the, work day. the West Coast. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, anything in closing that like if or people want more information that they should check out? Yeah, no, I think that there's uh, a lot of really cool resources, a lot of states who are starting to implement PEP and PrEP protocols. So like in New Mexico, we have a, a statewide standing order. Uh, well, it's more of a, a prescriptive authority where pharmacists can get trained uh, to prescribe PEP, to do a rapid test in the pharmacy, get it out there. Um, Other states might have uh, PrEP uh, prescriptive authority, PrEP protocols, things like that. Um, And so there's a lot of really great opportunities for pharmacists to be involved in preventing HIV. I think the big thing that I want people to know is that if you have people that come into your pharmacy, you have HIV, um, you're, as long as you're following your standard precautions, you're at no more risk than anyone else. Um, Wear your gloves if you're given a vaccine um, and give them PrEP, offer them PrEP. And if you know of local resources, um, then great. We definitely want to refer them there. Usually Department of Health will have websites. I know in New Mexico, we have, um, it's the nmhivguide.org, but it actually, you can check a box that says like, I want prep or I want, you know, whatever. And it'll take you to resources in your area, which is really neat. Um, there's also, uh, other websites and I'm pulling them up here cause I'm totally going to butcher them. I know, but, um, there's like telemedicine for prep. So one that, uh, we use and some 340B 
the FQHCs might be interested in is uh, there's Mr. and Sister, but then there's also NURCS. It's N-U-R-X, I think is how you say it. There's Plush, Folks, Push, QCare. There's a lot of online prep options. So sending people there if there's not a local place for them. Um, and then there's, um, I feel like it changed, but get your prep org or prepme.org. I'm going to have to find that, but it's a really, it's through the CDC. Um, it just really kind of trying to get prep out there to end the HIV epidemic. It's kind of along with their, um, what we call the EHE 2030. So ending the HIV epidemic by 2030. So lots of, uh, things. What I'll do is I'll send you the link to the, the website. Cause I, I don't know it off the top of my head. It's bookmarked and I can't find it. Yeah, no, that'd be great. I'll include it in the show notes and perfect. Yeah, that'd be perfect. But yeah, this has been great. I love talking about PrEP and PEP. So there's also always um, local um, AIDS education and training center um, places. So I'm in the region of the um, South Central region and we have a bunch of people all over, but lots of different places. So, you know, I'm happy to give out my information and uh, people can connect with me and I'll get them to a a training center that's near to them so they can get um, free education, free CE. We do a lot of things. And then we also have a prevention tele-echo. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with echoes, but um, it's a really cool model of learning and case-based presentations. We do it uh, every week on Tuesdays from 12 to 1 mountain time. So it's kind of rough for you East Coasters, but it's still an option. And we record some of the didactics too. So that's awesome. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, any, whatever contact information you want to share, I'll definitely put in the show notes because yeah. I'm sure people would want to reach out to you. That'd be great. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and talk to us. Um, really thank appreciate you. it. Um, and then, uh, as always, thank you to our sponsor, Pearls, um, for supporting the podcast and making us uh, financially able to keep things rocking and rolling. Um, and if you guys want to ask a question or contact Cole or myself, obviously our information will be in the show notes as well. Um, and uh, we just appreciate you guys sticking with us for all 180 episodes so far. Hopefully uh, to many more. We'll see. Yeah, that will get shut down next time. I'll never know. <laughs> you better not get shut down. My yeah. learners like to, to listen to you all to learn some some knowledge. So I appreciate it. You need to vet the information before you, <laughs> you never know. They'll come that. to me. They'll come to yeah. me with questions. Be like, so. what are they talking about? But now, thank you so much, Carly, for being with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Thank you all, too. Um, have a great one. We'll see you guys in the next episode.